This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines and critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And this week, we're talking about Brazil, both the devastating effects of COVID-19 on the country, as well as concerns about the future of Brazilian democracy. Brazil is South America's largest country with a population of about 210 million. And in terms of COVID-19, Brazil is second only to the U.S. worldwide in terms of the total number of deaths and cases. As of June 17th, more than 45,000 people have died from the disease and more than 900,000 have been infected. The daily death rate in Brazil is now the highest in the world. Far-right President Jair Bolsonaro's response to COVID-19, which has ranged from denying the severity of the risk of the disease to sabotaging isolation measures, has been heavily criticized, and the economy is in a free fall. In the midst of the pandemic, political crises in Brazil have intensified and raised serious concerns about the future of Brazilian democracy. To help us understand what's happening in Brazil and its implications, I am joined by Ilona Zabo, a political scientist from Brazil who is founder and executive director of the Igarape Institute in Brazil. Welcome, Ilona. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Brian. We are also joined by Andres Chipani, who is the Financial Times Brazil correspondent. Andres, it's great to have you here as well. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure. So I want to start out with, you know, the the headline issue that's capturing most attention around the world and the COVID-19 pandemic. And I was wondering, Ilona, if I could start with you uh, to just briefly lay out how has President Bolsonaro responded to this crisis and how do we understand why Brazil has had such a devastating result? Yeah, sure. To start, right, I think he didn't respond. So basically, Bolsonaro is also like a COVID denier. I think one of the last ones in the world standing just uh, saying that the COVID was just a little flu when it started, then saying that who cares that people are dying uh, and unfortunately has been having a, a, a major clash with including two health ministers that were dismissed in the midst of COVID. I haven't heard about this going on in other, any other place in the world. And by now we have a, a, a interim military minister uh, trying to prescribe, you know, chloroquine, which is, is still uh, a contested uh, uh, medicine, uh, I- including in the U.S. So, uh, and apart from that, I think the amazing lack of coordination, Brian, that is going on. So because Bolsonaro has a, a very difficult relationship with governors and mayors, uh, he hasn't been playing the role. Uh, we have one of the best health systems in, in the world when it comes to uh, universal coverage. It has been defunded over years, but right now we could have been really using it to its best. And unfortunately, uh, Bolsonaro is just fighting uh, uh, governors and mayors' uh, uh, isolation or lockdown measures and trying to uh, 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 just say to the population that they should go back uh, to their normal lives, uh, participating in political manifestations, uh, just because I think uh, in the end of the day, he's worried about the, the economy, which is the only thing he can hold still uh, when it comes to, to trying to save his popularity that is uh, coming down, um, you know, in, in very abruptly since uh, since before the crisis, but during the crisis has been accentuating. So, you know, it's interesting to, to listen to that from the perspective of the U.S., where we've had some similar dynamics of a lack of strong leadership at the federal level, efforts at the state level and city level in order to respond to the, to the disease. I'm, I'm curious, in the case of Brazil, is this approach popular? 
I no, I'd say no, but I mean, Irona was making a good point. So the the popularity of Bolsonaro was plummeting, but. You have to think that he took office in January last year and his popularity was roughly 60-64%. Now he's standing at 27-28%. Uh, he lost, I mean, that fall accelerated in the past two or three months, which highlights that uh, the COVID crisis, I mean, his hand, his budget response to the COVID crisis definitely has contributed. And if you see some of the latest polls, you see that people by roughly 50%, at least 50% of the Brazilians feel like his response to the pandemic has been bad. Uh, one of the reasons why the first uh, health minister, a medical doctor, the one, one was, Ilona was mentioned, resigned, was, uh, well, he was fired, actually, uh, was before he was becoming more popular than Bolsonaro. Uh, he was actually trying to push through social isolation measures, but then he will say something on the Thursday and on the Sunday the president will come onto a rally outside the presidential palace to rub shoulders and take selfies with protesters. So that's the kind of scenario we are still in. I mean, we are, we're probably going to cross the one million, the threshold of one million infections this weekend. And there has been no, I mean, there has been no national lockdown, as Ilona was saying. I mean, the, the, the governors have taken the rise and the mayors of the situation, uh, but there has been no national testing campaign, for example. Uh, so again, states and, and, and municipalities has had to take matters into into their own hands. So, in terms of the of the role that the governors and mayors have taken, have they become more popular in the in the midst of this? You know, it's a dynamic we've seen in the United States, and I'm wondering uh, if there's been something similar happening in Brazil. Yes, but because of the political war, Bolsonaro is also trying to curb their power. So there is a, a you know, a, a big defiance, uh, including in, in like trying to get the judiciary to to prohibit or to allow uh, certain, uh, I'll say, executive measures, and including. I think there's something very serious happening that is uh, not being so uh, publicized, which is uh, Bolsonaro is also unleashing uh, investigations against uh, the governors. Uh, some, you know, some are uh, may uh, be committing. Uh, corruption uh, uh, crimes, uh, for example, with the prices of, of equipment and so on, but others are not. So I've been talking to governors in Brazil that said that they cannot buy anything anymore because the public servants will not sign for these purchases in the emergency situation that they are because, uh, you know, the, the law of uh, uh, the, the economic law, just uh, uh, equipment and, and maybe some uh, even tests are overpriced and they are being already uh, pushed, uh, uh, you know, like the, the, the justice is just trying to get them for corruption or for wrongdoings uh, in the middle of uh, trying to, when they're trying to respond to the emergency crisis. So just to, to put it more clearly, uh, governors and, and state public servants are afraid of buying uh, equipment, uh, tests, uh, because of the, the, the price uh, uh, that uh, they, are allowed, they are offered in the markets, given the also, I would say, not very Republican ways that the, the federal government has been trying to uh, uh, promote uh, that they are not doing the right thing, that they're corrupt or, or just uh, 
trying to to take uh, advantage of the pandemics also to to save uh, funds for campaigns and so on. So there's something quite serious happening on the health uh, uh, front, which I I'm afraid Brazil will be lacking tests and will be lacking uh, some sort of like a very uh, a fundamental. Uh, ways to go forward uh, out of lockdown and isolation for a second or third phase of this disease. And Andres, do you see this situation continuing like this, or is there something that could change the trajectory of the response to the disease? I don't see it. I mean, for the past few weeks, Bolsonaro, I mean, if you if you read between the lines of what he says, is essentially he's pushing for herd immunity. So he repeatedly said that, well, 70% of the population is going to catch it, so we have to live with it. Uh, and probably we have to live with that. Um, yesterday, only yesterday, I mean, his cabinet chief said the situation it is managed, is under control, when it is not. I mean, it's obviously rocketing. Um, and as Ilona was saying, I see the political bickering actually increasing, which is also a strategy to defer attention from the pandemic. So uh, he has been very good at monopolizing headlines simply by attacking the Supreme Court, attacking Congress, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and if not him, his staunch supporters, some of them who are now uh, under investigation for either attacking the Supreme Court or spreading a fake news, and so on and so forth. All of that makes for, for, for a very toxic scenario. And in a way, he's succeeding in, in deflecting the attention from the pandemic. I mean, at this point, he could, he, could, he could say, like, you have to think, like, unlike the U.S., Brazil is much more unequal and much more poor. So if you have someone telling you, okay, you need to go back to work because otherwise you're going to starve or your business is going gonna, is gonna to go bust. Well, in a way... Even if you th- even if you know it may be wrong, but that's what you want. So, I mean, if if a governor comes the next day and say, "Actually, you can't," uh, that puts governors in a very odd position. But there's also what what Leona was saying. I was speaking to to a governor from a northeastern state. I mean, I'm not going to mention who he is, but he said that a, a few weeks ago they were trying to buy respirators from a local manufacturer in the south of the country. And then the federal government, and this is an enemy of the president, the federal government found out it essentially stopped the sale, seized the ventilators, and then distributed those according to their own wishes. So again, there's also also political brickering on in terms of, 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 of medical equipment, which is quite worrying. Yeah, and I think just to pick a point that Andrew just uh, uh, Andres uh, spoke about, I think that just to put it the context for you know the the, the audience uh, of this podcast, like Bolsonaro is uh, emulates Trump in everything. You know, there is an adoration. Uh, he also uh, has the the fake news mantra book, so he's a super spreader. So his sons, especially his youngest sons. Uh, created what we call the hate cabinet, which is like a group, shadowy group devoted to spreading digital propaganda and attacks against opponents since the first day, actually since before, but like uh, this is kind of a a para-official institution uh, at the the presidency uh, of Bolsonaro. So there is a a, a lot there. And also like uh, Steve Bannon was one of the of the mentors uh, of of this campaign, it's, uh, one of the other Bolsonaro son is also like the the right uh, 
arm of, of uh, the, the Steve Bannon movement in Latin America. So there is a lot going on there in terms of trying to, to emulate behaviors, but use the narrative, the fake news machine, and this intimidation uh, to, to just uh, really defy, like not only political opponents, but society in general, this cultural war that we see uh, abroad, we also see in Brazil, uh, uh, with the, I would say, with the worst consequence, which is we don't have the right, uh, I mean, our institutions are still uh, maturing, we have a young democracy. Yeah, and that's exactly where I would like to go because you've talked about the dynamics of how uh, Bolsonaro has used politics in order to cast blame and deflect attention on himself. Um, and going into this crisis, uh, Bolsonaro already faced serious political challenges, uh, including investigations of family members and, and others. Andres, could you just kind of paint a picture of and what was the situation before the um, pandemic hit? And then I want to talk about how the pandemic has exacerbated the, the tensions with democracy. I mean, there were tensions and there was but there was at least some movement. So Congress was pushing for economic reforms that the administration has put forward and some of those were passing. But there was, I mean, Bolsonaro essentially, he, you have to think that Jair Bolsonaro was a backbencher in Congress for 28 years. Uh, he was a middle-rank army captain for most of his military career. And so essentially, he needed, he made his name by making outrageous comments. Uh, he was never a proper policymaker. So, and then he moved into the presidency. Yeah, that has been his style, uh, even now. So there was always bickering with Congress. There was you could start to see tensions with the Supreme Court. I mean, he has made no. I mean, he's always professed his admiration for for Latin American military dictators in the 1970s and early 1980s. Um, but now, obviously, uh, and he has been very good. And what I was saying, so through social media, to agitate, to mobilize his power base, uh, who is for essentially. Quite similar to the U.S. and the three things, essentially guns, God, and and yeah, guns, uh, guns. No, essentially it's guns and and, and and God. So, well, and there's a and a bit of nationalism. There's an obsession within the Bolsonaro supporters with the U.S. and with Israel. Also, they they they, they feel that they have a connection with them. But all of that made for a cauldron that we are seeing now that. Almost every Sunday, Bolsonaro supporters go to the to to the gates of the presidential palace, and the president comes out to greet them. Two or three weeks ago, he came out on horseback, essentially, while these people were chanting, "Shut down the Congress and shut down the Supreme Court," calling in for a military intervention. So now, as you said, the political tensions are now higher because, you know, as a way of deflecting blame from the pandemic. Uh, he is cornering more and more the Supreme Court, which the flip side is they're actually cornering him more and more. As you said, there's investigation allegedly involving his sons on on this sort of like fake news scandal, which could potentially lead to a ruling that could annul his election in 2018. And we don't know. Well, if he's not very fond of democracy, as many people think, will he abide to a ruling from the Supreme Court? Um there's also potentially an indictment coming soon of again on allegations that he's been interfering with police work, which was the reason why his star justice minister Sergio Moro 
slammed the door about a m- over a month ago. Uh, another, now the Supreme Court has ordered raids into, into some of his followers for attacking the Supreme Court, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So, yes, I mean, the political tension is high. However, he has managed to do one thing, which is he managed to buy off some key members of the center-right coalition in Congress. That will, at least for now, because these people are shifty, grant him a sort of like a solid ground to avoid an impeachment. That's number one. Number two, still, I mean, his popularity ratings have been dropping. We are now roughly a third, as I said, 27, 28%. But that's not enough to get impeached. And if you get an indictment, you need Congress to approve that. So there's still not enough popular pressure uh, for him to be ejected from office. I mean, as a comparison, the two Brazilian presidents, Fernando Cruz de Mello and uh, Dilma Rousseff, who were impeached in 1992 and 2016, the impeachment proceedings started when their approval ratings were at 10%. We may get there maybe early next year, but I don't think that's going to happen in the middle of the pandemic. However, his strategy is to keep his base energized. That's a sort of like an insurance policy against anything. And so, yes, I mean, a way, and these people like to be told, yes, we love the military, and then, and then the military is the hope of the country, and then the, the military can keep institutions in check, and so on and so forth. So one of the things that we've seen in other countries where democracy has been under threat has been the critical role often played by the court system in the independence of the judiciary. And that, that often is kind of the, 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 the bastion out of which the democratic institutional system is held together. You've talked about tensions in, in the Supreme Court. Ilona, I would be curious on, on your take, to what extent is the Supreme Court um, uh, independence something that is fairly stable, or to what extent can it be, can it be undermined, and we, should we be concerned about that? Well, I would say that the, the judiciary is playing a, a critical role. Uh, the issue is that he'll be able to to nominate two justices like until the end of his term. And there is also maneuvering, which I think the Congress will block, but to just change the, the age limit uh, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, the justices would have to retire so he could just actually nominate four instead of two. So I would say that today, uh, I don't see any, I would say that, that there is a separation of powers and the, the critical problem we have today is this Congress, uh, I would say, uh, uh, is buying uh, support from this uh, center uh, we call physiological centers, which are the parties that only exist to be in power. But the judiciary, I, I think, uh, has a critical role. But just to just summarize what uh, 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 Andres said, so he faces three different lines of investigations, and all uh, the three uh, sons that are in politics as well uh, are, are also facing investigations. So for electoral crime, that would be economic abuse during campaign, and that would just, uh, you know, uh, if, if it would go forward, would then uh, uh, basically uh, uh, just to provoke a new election in the country. And two others, like 35 requests for impeachment already or plus in Congress, which we don't have the political timing for that, as Andres mentioned. And the third line, which is this common crime, which is uh, he's been accused uh, of actually trying to put this to interfere uh, in the in the federal police. And to be honest, uh, after the, the, the main 
minister that was the bastion of the anti-corruption uh, judge that joined as a minister of justice has left. Uh, uh, there was uh, abrupt, like significant changes in federal police um, nominations around the country. So we could see a development of that. But to understand the base, I think we need to, to understand Bolsonaro got to power because many people ask, how did you get to this point? What happened to Brazil? And, you know, I ask my, that question every day because Bolsonaro never lied. He is what he is. And he said that he would do what he's doing. And that's why, you know, many people are, are today regretting mostly. And we saw this dehydration like of the base. So firstly, the people that already left him were the people that were uh, actually uh, voting for a, a, a anti-corruption or anti-workers party uh, election, which was very strong. And he captured the zeitgeist. Uh, and partly because also of this car wash corruption scandal that was led by the, the former Minister of Justice that ended up joining the government and then leaving. So these people are already out. The second uh, people that are kind of uh, uh, one foot in, one foot out are, are the ones, the, the liberals that wanted the reforms going. Some of them already understood, well, this political crisis and uh, will not allow this to move forward. And Bolsonaro in the end was never liberal himself. It was just uh, 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 also like a uh, a periodic alliance there. But Paulo Guedes, the finance minister, continues to be with him. So I think this would be uh, another possible clash. But he has a very secure basis, as Andres was mentioning, uh, with the, the, the gun lovers. So uh, he's a NRA fanatic. Uh, you know, I know him for many, many years. I debated him in 2005 when we had again a gun referendum in Brazil. So he's an NRA and all this, uh, his uh, sons as well. So that is his most loyal base, which includes military and, and, and part of uh, police uh, as well. The second is the evangelicals, new Pentecostals, like same as Trump. And, and the third, I would say, uh, older men that also are frustrated, that lost economic power, status in society. So it's a very similar base uh, if you think about the Trump base. And this is hard to know exactly how much more he will lose from this, uh, regardless what he does. So that's, I think that's a big question for, for an impeachment in Brazil. So this is, this is really interesting. And in that, and in you point out parallels in the United States and Bolsonaro's strategy of really focusing on his base and mobilizing his base throughout these crises. One of the things that's also been discussed, at least in the press up here, um, is the potential relationship uh, an ability to mobilize a relationship with the military. We've touched on it in this conversation, the military dictatorship of the 70s and the, and the 80s, the fact that Bolsonaro comes out of the out of the military. And in the last couple of weeks, there has been speculations and some uh, even politicians floating the idea that the military may become involved in, in, in politics, uh, perhaps to even shore up Bolsonaro's power. Uh, you look at Venezuela, obviously, you know, there, there's a story of an alliance between the military and, and political leaders. How do you interpret uh, this talk about the relationship with the military and how does it affect the, pol the, the politics um, in the country at this point? I think there are a few issues here at play. So it's true that he has packed his cabinet with military men, some of them retired generals, some of them active generals, including his chief of staff. 
Uh, for example, when there was the harming that the Supreme Court was closing the Netherlands investigation, his national security advisor, a retired general who was head of the MINUSTA, his UN peacekeeping mission in Haiti, came out to say there could be dramatic consequences if that investigation kept going. Essentially, they were trying to get Bolsonaro's uh, a warrant for Bolsonaro's mobile phone uh, to be checked. So, but so far, the chief of staff of the armed forces has been quite silent in all this. He obviously has strong support within the military. And as you said, yes, I mean, I used to cover Venezuela, and I remember, so Chavez was a former military man, and he surrounded himself with the people he, he thought they were loyal to. So, a chunk of the military people. Maduro has actually, Nicolás Maduro, has actually increased that presence in his cabinet because of the fears of the military of toppling him. So essentially, he managed to get surrounded by, and now in a way, he's a bit hostage of them. So they, he gave them some of the scheduled businesses. So in a way, he put them inside a net of corruption. So now they cannot leave him, but they cannot turn against him. Here, the dynamic is different, but there was, yes, this talk of, because this is, but this is also part of keeping his base energized. His base liked this idea of military intervention. But it's really hard in this day and age to think of a coup in, like, again, back in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. I mean, I was born in Argentina in the dictatorship, raised there, when remember lively a couple of coup attempts. I cannot see that. But if I can see something, if essentially, as Ilona was saying, so the moderating power, which is the Supreme Court, is essentially being shrugged off and cornered by Bolsonaro. They said, okay, there's an indictment. And Bolsonaro says, I don't care, you don't have the authority. Or uh, they said, two or three days ago, no, over the weekend, he said, the military has not to be subordinated to any other political power. So it may we could get closer to a scenario that is not like the classic coup of a tank and boots in the presidential palace, but maybe closer to something that Alberto Fujimori, another right-wing populist, did in Peru in 1992, which was essentially turn the tanks and the boots against the Supreme Court, the press, and Congress, and shut them down. Uh, I still think there's a, a long way till we get there, but that's definitely a possibility these days. Then our understanding is that the armed forces are divided to an extent, yes, but as Ilona was saying, his obsession with guns goes to a very Chavista way of saying we need to arm the people, as Chavez has done, so otherwise the people will not be able to defend themselves. I mean, essentially, it's a very U.S. model thing that you need to defend against your institution, that's why you have an amendment, and you can hold on a gun. So... That's how the debate is playing out. For now, is acting as a way of energizing his, his power base, yes. But I think they're also testing how much the armed forces... I mean, not talking about the, the armed forces in government, the actual armed forces, the men in the barracks, generals in the... In, I mean, the chiefs of staff of the armed forces are actually with him or without him on this. There's something else, so one last element. In this country, post-dictatorship in 1985, one of the concessions done was not only an amnesty law, unlike Argentina, for example, where we had, where we tried the generals, uh, there was an amnesty law here, but also one of the conditions was, okay, the police in the state, the national police, I mean, not the federal police, the federal police, a bit like the FBI in the US, the, the, the national police is gonna be a military police. 
And those are the people you see here on the streets. And a big chunk of those are very, very loyal to Bolsonaro. So there's a big question mark on how the military police react to any haranguing from the president. Yeah, I think you touched the the, the most, uh, I'd say, dangerous point because there is a kind of a clash in the military forces. We have almost 3,000 uh, military serving in political positions at Bolsonaro government. I just read in a survey, I mean, in a research, this is like more than in all the years of the dictator military. Uh, military dictatorship altogether. So we have more military uh, serving. And we discovered that some of them are active military. They're not retired. So there is, uh, 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 I would say, uh, um, at the moment, I think a very risky take for the armed forces who are, uh, you know, an institution that was very well regarded in the country, even after, uh, you know, the, 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 the dictatorship, they try to, to keep distance from power. So this is point one, and we don't know how they would act. Uh, at least uh, uh, some people say that they could just simply not act. But I think what we fear more is the point on the military police and the armed uh, loyal, like uh, loyalists uh, to Bolsonaro. He has been dismantling our gun control legislation since day one of his presidency, and this was one of his main proposals during his campaign. And uh, he's he has been actually uh, uh, been promoting that uh, all his supporters get guns and. If you talk to police, if you talk to governors who are responsible for the military police in these different states in Brazil, uh, there is a conversation already about uh, a, a radicalized, like small groups, but very radicalized, that would say that uh, they would go for like a, a civil war kind of movement if the Supreme Court or Congress try to take uh, Bolsonaro out of power. So I think we it's not that this will happen. But this conversation in the more radical domain of, of supporters is happening, which is, uh, I would say, uh, per se, very unsettling. And definitely the role of the military then to curb rebellions and to curb uh, any, any uh, I would say, more um, violent response from from his supporters uh, is uh, the, you know what would decide uh, uh, which way we go so it's less of a military coup like traditionally it's much more i'd say what kind of uh, violent protests or insurrections could happen if one of the three lines of investigation would move forward and and at some point uh, decide that he would have to step out of presidency so we're running out of time, but I want to talk about one more issue before we bring it to a close, which is linking the pandemic and the political dynamics that we've been talking about uh, to the global environmental crisis. And of course, last year, the big global story uh, being covered from Brazil was the massive fires and destruction of the Amazon rainforest. Um to what extent is the pandemic and these political dynamics that we have been talking about, to what extent um, does that link to this year's challenges regarding uh, potential fires in the Amazon? The Unfortunately, deforestation has been uh, increasing uh, under Bolsonaro government, has been, uh, you know, he has been dismantling. Uh, all the environmental like enforcement agencies, and uh, also I would say promoting uh, a discourse that uh, the natural resources are for use. And I would couple that with the the I would say a, a 
older view by the military that the Amazon should be integrated to Brazil, which means big infrastructure projects, means, uh, 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 I would say, uh, uh, another uh, vision of sovereignty that uh, uh, would imply uh, a development that would just accelerate even more the the deforestation and and I would say the the, the disorganized uh, uh, disorganized progress that is happening in the region. So I I just do think that we're going to see unfortunately uh, a, a bigger crisis than last year. The last uh, information we have is that the deforestation for 2020 uh, will at least be the same as the 2019, which is already 34 percent higher than the year before. So we we are, are not seeing a government that is uh, uh, really uh, worried about uh, the environment. We are not going to be attaining the, the goals for the Paris Agreement this year. And as we know, the Amazon uh, is very linked to the future of uh, the regulation of climate in our planet. And so I think this is one of the main issues. I think the only issue that Brazil today uh, could uh, benefit from uh, huge international pressure because the, the, it's, a, it's a common, it's a public good. So we'll need uh, international support to try to, to avoid the worst because we're almost, uh, according to scientists, uh, reaching the tipping point, which, which uh, is the level of deforestation that will provoke uh, savanization of the forest. And, and it's, a, it's a point of no return. And for sure, we, we want to avoid that. Yeah, they, and, and, and jumping on that, we go back to the military, for example. Earlier, a couple of weeks ago, the, the government decided to send the military to help fight the forestation, among other things. But as Ilona was saying, the forestation kept rising. I mean, the latest data that was released last week shows that uh, between January and May this year, an area more than two times the size of New York City was essentially... A chainsaw uh, down in the Amazon. So it's, it's 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 very very worrying. And we, as Ilona was saying, we don't see the government very keen on actually taming this. I mean, the 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 kind of the the unspoken truth, if you want it, is like what they said is like the government is. I mean, people like illegal loggers and ranchers who are essentially grabbing land. And, and illegal gun, wildcard miners, and so on, they essentially started to feel they have caught blanche to do whatever they want, because one of the things that have happened over the past, over the past years, since Bolsonaro took to office, was that some a, a, a big chunk of the of the enforcement of the anti-deforestation enforcement has been essentially watered down. I look forward to another opportunity to pursue this even in more detail. As we close, the one thing I want to get each of you to comment on is, as we've talked about, um, the political dynamic in Brazil includes a lot of trying to divert attention. There will be news stories that come out day after day that chase those kinds of diversions. I'd like to ask each of you, what should our listeners pay most attention to, to understand how Brazil is proceeding, and particularly the stability of democracy in Brazil going forward. Uh, Ilona, do you want to start out? Yes, I think there, I mean, through the, there, I, I always analyze democracy through this uh, three different lenses. Uh, one where I am, which is the civic space, which I think it's uh, severely compromised to date. So there is a, 
uh, a series of strategies that have been deployed against civil society, against uh, science, against uh, cultural institutions, against uh, uh, like uh, academic institutions. So I think there we are uh, definitely already in trouble. So many of the, the democracy think tanks in the world already uh, classify us as an electoral democracy, not as a liberal democracy anymore, which is so what is in our constitution. So the second lens is the lens of uh, the institutions per se, the republic, the separation of powers. And there I would say, uh, at the outside, uh, they are still holding on, Congress and the judiciary, but the institutions in the executive branch are playing a lot of constitutional hardball. There is a lot of abuse of power, and uh, he's been governing by decree. He's also been subverting uh, the, the the main goals of uh, institutions, like the environmental protections, the the, uh, the protections of minorities, human rights, uh, even education. So I'd say that there is a dismantling from the inside, which sometimes not captured by just the, 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 the normal political science lens. And so I would say that we need to watch to, the, to which extent Congress and the judiciary will be able to uh, push back uh, with uh, agility, like uh, agile responses to the abuse of power that Bolsonaro has been promoting. And the third lens, which scares uh, uh, me most in terms of uh, how to respond to that, is the use of force. As we're saying, he, he has been promoting uh, this uh, arming of the population, but population here means his loyal supporters, which is just a, a, a whole discussion there, and this kind of uh, very close relationship that he has to lower ranks in the military police, but also in the army. Uh, that would uh, uh, be a, a big question. What would be the role then of the army as like the institution in pushing back any kind of intent to uh, avoid that uh, uh, a trial or, or any of these lawsuits against him could proceed. So there are three different lenses here, and I, I just think that the three are very important to capture uh, uh, what is going on there. Andreas? Yeah, I do agree. I mean, I think any increase in attacks on democracy with the Supreme Court or Congress, but particularly a strong focus on the Supreme Court now, be it by the pen or by the whip, should be something to pay a lot of attention to. Something also related to the U.S., uh, it would be a big blow for Bolsonaro if uh, Trump loses uh, the election in November. Uh, he could grow increasingly isolated at a time probably where left-wing governments would start calling back in Latin America. I mean, it all points that the party of Evo Morales will win back in Bolivia. Uh, probably a Rafael Correa proxy will win in Ecuador in February next year. And you have... AMLO in Mexico, Alberto Fernandez in Argentina, so he will grow increasingly isolated. If Trump loses, uh, that's something else. Then the pandemic. Uh, we don't know yet how much of an effect the death toll is going to have on the president. I mean, this is a country that has roughly, I mean, had sort of like an average, I would say, I mean, Ilona, you can correct me, but roughly 50 to 60 to 70,000 uh, 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 killings a year. Uh, so now we are at 45,000 deaths, but if the death toll keeps rising, it could be a problem. I mean, we are, I mean, it depends on who you talk to, but now I'm saying, okay, the peak 
of the pandemic could be now in mid-July, but if the lockdowns are eased, which is already happening, it could be September, but some people are saying it could even be January. So the scope, the, 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 if, if the pandemic really, really blows, that will be something to really pay attention to. And the other thing that I think should, we should pay attention to is the economy. Brazil was only limping out of a brutal recession in 2015 and 2016, and now, I mean, again, depending on who you talk to, but the World Bank says uh, the Brazilian economy is going to contract 8% this year. Wall Street Bank banks and yet somewhere between 7 and 10%. Unemployment is going to rocket. This is a, a country with not many safety nets. I mean, now they are imposing, the, and now they have a cash transfer state, a new cash transfer essentially to, to fight the hardship for the pandemic for the informal sector, which is roughly 40 million people and some of the low-income workers. They talk about expanding that, but at the same time, there's also a huge fiscal problem in this country. And if you keep spending money in stimulus like this, which for one, on the one hand, it will safeguard the livelihoods of some people in the short term uh, and ramp up consumption. But on the other hand, it could pose a very big fiscal problem. Uh, I mean, there are estimates that we are probably going to uh, cross the threshold of 100% of debt to GDP ratio next year. So then that would be a problem in a country that is already... I mean, it's middle income, but it could slip back into. But it has deep, very deep pockets of poverty, especially in the Northeast and in the Amazon. And uh, inequality levels could, could even, could, could even go, go, go out of whack. Yeah, just a final point on Andres on, on the economy. I think uh, that's the big question because he, he has been trying to uh, kind of uh, uh, master the narrative that uh, you know the economic crisis is the problem of, of course, the governors because of the measures uh, to prevent lockdown. So the population is really confused because actually people are suffering, people are uh, losing their dear ones. Uh, but if he masters to link the, the uh, economy turned down to governors, this is, uh, you know, I would say dangerous uh, for democracy, and and that's what they're trying to do. And but we know the economic crisis started even before it was not uh, 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 going so well. And he will have to face the the, the big question, as Andreas said, if he can continue uh, providing the emergency ca cash transfers or not. And if not, because of the fiscal deficit, uh, we'll see. Uh, I believe uh, uh, um, a, a, a big. Um, dropping his popularity as well. So I think that's uh, to be watched. And to be uh, really taken care as, as I would say, as a, a global civil society is the environmental issue because uh, that's something that concerns all of us and we are really very close to the point of no return on the Amazon forest. So clearly an incredibly important time for Brazil, uh, its citizens and the world. Ilona Zabo of the Igarape Institute of Brazil and Andreas Shipani of the Financial Times. I want to thank you both for being on Deep Dish and help us understand what's happening. Thank you very much. Brian. Thank you so much, Brian. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. The Chicago Council on Global Affairs is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from listeners like you to support our programming. So if you like the show, please consider supporting our work by going to thechicagocouncil.org slash donate. 
If you're looking for more Deep Dish, please tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our producer for this episode is Molly Meyer, and our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. Deep Dish.